Paris, 1719. It was a prosperous time. Shops were crowded, the French economy was booming. All thanks to a man named John Law and his bold experiment. In fact, it was the world's first experiment into quantitative easing. Law was a Scottish economist and a renowned gambler and adventurer. He was also an astute opportunist. At the time, France was coming off Louis XIV's endless wars. The economy had been devastated. France was drowning in debt. Interest rates soared. There was even a shortage of coins in circulation. John Law, who had charmed his way into the affluent circles of Paris, had an idea to revive the economy. He convinced the Duke of Orléans, who ruled France at the time, to create what would become France's first central bank. The bank would introduce paper money, which could be used to pay off debt from the wars. It would print an abundance of these notes, flooding the economy with a new supply of money and reducing interest rates. Law controlled France's monetary decisions. He also owned and managed the Mississippi Company, which was tied directly to the financial system and profited from the bank's policies through real estate speculation and trade monopolies. John Law became the richest man in the world. The French economy boomed, but it didn't take long for the tide to turn and for people to realize that it was too good to be true. Inflation became rampant, and John Law was forced to take the path of deflation. A run on the bank was triggered when it was revealed that the value of paper notes issued was higher than the bank's coin reserves. The economic bubble burst. This first experiment in quantitative easing ended in failure. Mississippi Company's share price collapsed, and John Law was forced out of France, penniless. It was a hard lesson, a lesson that is repeated again and again around the world over the past 300 years. Today, central banks face similar challenges and uncertainty. We're at the end of a long era of low interest rates, fueled by rounds of quantitative easing. Inflation is surging across much of the world. Supply chain disruptions continue. Trade relationships are shifting. With so much uncertainty, it can feel as if we're in unprecedented times. But as the story of John Law reminds us, history often repeats itself. To understand today's investment landscape, it's important to know how we got here. I'm Albert Chen, and this is The Outthinking Investor, a podcast from PGM that entangles the past, the present-day opportunities, and the future possibilities of the financial tools we take for granted. In this episode, we'll hear from two experts on the interest rate environment. Edward Chancellor is a financial historian, investment strategist, and journalist. His new book, The Price of Time, covers the history of interest rates. Ed Campbell is co-head of multi-asset at PGM Quantitative Solutions. 
History has judged John Law's experiment in quantitative easing a failure. But there's no control group for designing monetary policy. So we can't know how the French economy might have fared had Law not created France's first central bank and paper notes. Central bankers have no alternative but to work with the data they have. And back in 1719, there were no stochastic models to inform decisions or to lay blame on. As Edward Chancellor explains, this was a difficult time that called for a bold solution. The background was that France in this period or immediately before this period, its economy was depressed, prices were falling, the government was over-indebted, and there was a general sense of economic malaise. So in some way, those conditions were similar to what we experienced after the global financial crisis. He very much succeeded in the early phase of his plan. He, he founded France's first central bank, the Bank Royal, and that bank went out and acquired and issued a great deal of paper money, roughly doubling the currency in issuance. Now, what's interesting is that law succeeded in reducing French interest rates on government debt from about 6% to about 2%. And one consequence of that is that the share price of his Mississippi company increased by a factor of 20 times in the course of little over a year. And the yield or the price earnings ratio of the Mississippi company was at 50 times. And the earnings yield, the inverse price earnings ratio, was 2%. It's hard to say whether John Law saw the connection between the sharp decline in interest rates and the surge in Mississippi company shares. But this does look a lot like the environment of the past couple decades, where ultra-low interest rates fostered a boom in leverage takeovers. What's curious about this episode is that central bankers and modern monetary economists, they look upon law as the the founder of modern monetary policy, but they seem to forget that Law, who was also the the first person to experiment with quantitative easing, that his experiment ended in in, in abject failure, and that I think was you know a lesson that we may have to learn again today. Are we seeing this play out again with the Federal Reserve in real time? Has the allure of cheap money masked the dangers of a credit boom? Here's what P. Jim's Ed Campbell sees. The Fed made a massive policy mistake in uh, 2021 by judging the inflation problem to be transitory. It wasn't transitory. It was never going to be transitory. And by being complacent and suggesting that the problem would fix itself uh, without much in the way of Fed rate hikes, That was spectacularly wrong, and we're paying the price for that today. Now, we've seen a sea change in the expectations for Fed policy over the past year, and that's definitely intensified recently. I don't think Jay Powell is is Paul Volcker, and I do think if uh, if we see a recession in the next year, as is likely, and uh, the unemployment rate is rising, I do think the Fed would blink in that it would probably become more dovish, even if the inflation rate had not come back to its target range of about 2%. 
History has shown time and again that there can be too much of a good thing with interest rates remaining lower for longer. At some point, these low rates can shift from fostering growth to actually undermining productivity. Economists talk about malinvestment, when investment is misplaced. Now, one function of the interest rate is a hurdle rate for investments. And we see, or at least I see, two types of malinvestment that occurred over the last decade. One is related to what we call the corporate zombie phenomenon. Companies that had um, were unable to earn a decent return on capital that couldn't even pay the interest on their debt, even though interest rates were very low. And these companies, and which we find really in different places across the world, in, in China, in Europe, and also in the United States, these zombie companies appear to have been allowed to continue in existence because the cost of borrowing was so low. And the result of, of the zombie companies appears to be to discourage uh, new entrants into industries where zombies are prevalent, discourages investment by companies that are already in that area, and low employment growth and less new technological take-up. So if you put all that together, that feeds through to low productivity growth. There's another class of malinvestment, which we've also seen, which is a great flood of blind capital into technology ventures, many of which were, are unlikely to ever deliver a return on capital. But these companies didn't start out as zombies. So what was it that attracted investors in the first place? I think it's in large part because investors at a time of low rates were desperate for some potentially higher yielding invest returns. And that links to another problem that we see from the ultra low rates is that it encourages asset price inflation, the formation of speculative bubbles. And we see that really across the board, both in the broader US stock market, but also in the so-called unicorns of Silicon Valley, in the plethora of cryptocurrencies, and in a sort of global real estate bubble that was at its most extreme in China, but also can be found in the leading cities around the world. A third problem I'd identify with the ultra-low interest rates is a, is a growth of the financial sector at the expense of the real economy. The one term for interest is the, the cost of leverage. And what do companies often do when the cost of leverage is low? Load up on debt. And over the last decade, we saw, for instance, US corporations issuing large amounts of debt, sometimes to buy back their shares in order to boost their earnings per share, therefore their share prices, uh, what we call financial engineering. And we saw a, a wave of leverage buyouts, which take companies being taken private, uh, funded with, with, with cheap debt. And we saw a massive merger wave of the increasing concentration of businesses, often largely funded with debt. And the financialization causes a number of problems when it becomes excessive. It means that finance is no longer serving its useful function of transferring capital to where it has its highest return, but becomes, in a way, if you can call it parasitical, on the financial system and the economy itself. 
That sounds eerily similar to the Mississippi Company scenario and lots of other bubbles from history. Now we're experiencing the impact of a long period of low rates. That includes volatility creeping back into the markets. Realized vol is rising across all markets, stocks, commodities, REITs, currencies. In the bond market, it's the highest that we've seen since the global financial crisis. And that's really the standout. Volatility is the highest in the bond market relative to every other market. In the stock market, volatility is rising, but it's still not at levels uh, reached during COVID or the global financial crisis. Commodity market volatility is also rising, but I wouldn't describe it as extraordinary on the whole. Now, there are some exceptions within commodities. For example, oil and natural gas volatility is very high. So I would say in general, volatility is rising and generally high, but it's a, it's a varied picture depending on where you look. Higher rates and volatility in the bond market is a strong signal of uncertainty, and I think that's going to uh, keep volatility high and rising in uh, in other markets. In order for volatility to subside, I think we need more clarity on uh, on inflation and rates. Even without the impact of COVID and supply chain disruptions, we might have expected volatility to rise. When you have very low interest rates, you have an incitement for investors to what we call chase yield, to seek to take on more risk in order to maintain the same level of return. And that creates a potential instability in the financial system. And we also see on the international dimension, you see investors taking money from the developed markets where the cost of capital, cost of borrowing is very low, and investing it in the emerging markets where returns, where yields are somewhat higher. So over the last decade, we've seen a massive buildup of dollar-denominated and hard currency debt in the emerging markets. And one of the things that have been happening this year is that these large, these large dollar debts are being paid back, which is causing the dollar to be so strong. The US dollar has been strong for so long, but is it stretched to its limits? I do think the dollar is overstretched. The dollar is likely to weaken over the next several years and uh, certainly over the next decade. The dollar is very expensive on uh, on a valuation basis. Uh, you know, if you look at traditional value metrics and currency, uh, you know, such as purchasing power parity, inflation is high in the United States relative to most of the other major developed economies. So that should cause the dollar to uh, to weaken over the medium term versus um, these other countries. But the shorter term dynamics still really favor the dollar. So the interest rate channel is still uh, supportive of the dollar. Currencies tend to be influenced by momentum. And of course, um, momentum continues to favor the dollar. And then of course, the dollar is a, is a counter-cyclical currency because US financial markets are so deep and so liquid and um, the United States government uh, stable relative to other places in the world. Whenever there is uh, economic turmoil or fear of recession, there, there tends to be a flight to quality to the dollar. But I can see a period in the not too distant future where 
um, a lot of these things uh, reverse. There's so many factors influencing markets around the world. It's difficult to know where valuations are headed. So we've we've already seen a massive shift in valuations and a significant improvement in forward-looking returns across financial markets. Bond yields have risen massively and equity valuations have fallen very significantly. You may have heard the phrase Tina, there is no alternative, meaning that equities were uh, the only viable asset class to invest in because fixed income offered return-free risk to a world where people are now using the acronym TN, which is there is an alternative now. Fixed income is now an attractive asset class to invest in on a going forward basis. Moving away from an environment where equities offered risk-free return and fixed income offered return-free risk, perhaps we should expect disruption. What was it about these years that allowed growth and tech companies to offer seemingly risk-free return? Silicon Valley tech venture capital investment around the world saw a surge of interest after the global financial crisis. To some extent, this reflected a, a dearth of venture capital investment in the wake of the dot-com bust that had occurred 10 years earlier. But I think there was another factor at play. After the financial crisis, yields were very low and investors were chasing yields. One function, one, one consequence of very low yields is that investments with um, incomes in the very distant future, what are often called growth companies, tend to attract higher capitalization rates. So when you have interest rates, and therefore the discount rate or capitalization rate at which we value companies at its lowest level in history, we are likely to see a surge of a, a rise in the valuations of the most speculative growth companies. By about 2012, we saw the, the emergence of the so-called unicorn phenomenon of unlisted uh, venture capital companies valued at more than a billion dollars. Now, a few of those unicorns were bona fide businesses that have gone on to do great stuff. So Facebook was originally a unicorn, but a lot of the other businesses appear to have been founded largely with the intention of maximizing the pre-market value of a company up to the point of its IPO. This rising tide of capital may have lifted all boats, but not all of them stayed afloat. Many of these companies eventually saw their valuations sink to reflect more realistic revenue prospects. Some even failed outright, leaving investors holding the bag, especially those who got in late, driven by the fear of missing out. Add to that the spirit of buying the dip and the expectation that the Federal Reserve would come to the rescue if markets became too unstable. Central bankers and regulators tend to believe that you can separate monetary policy and regulation of the financial system so that there's nothing to worry about from this yield chasing. The problem we've had over the last decade is that on the one hand, we've had a mass of new financial regulation, both in the US and in Europe after the financial crisis, aiming to enforce 
prudent financial behavior. But at the same time, we've had monetary policy pushing in the other direction by taking interest rates down, policy rates down to zero, and in some cases below zero, which has forced investors to take more risk, whether taking more credit risk or taking more liquidity risk. And it's this liquidity and credit risk, in particular, investing in in bonds and credits outside of the banking system that has created a financial fragility, some of which has been unwinding in the course of this year, including the foreign borrowings by emerging markets that took place over the last decade or so. It sounds like the challenge is less about identifying the problem than it is about the politics related to solving it. No one wants to pull a punch bowl when the party's just getting started. China may be dealing with this lesson now. So one of the curious events that we saw after the global financial crisis was the was the sudden revival of China's economy in 2009. China at the time was the world's largest exporter and was running a current account surplus of 10% of GDP going into 2008. So one might have expected China's economy to suffered pretty severely by the global financial crisis. In fact, it recovered rapidly. But the source of the recovery was massive credit growth in China, authorized by the state, which fed through into a tremendous investment boom and what we have to call a real estate bubble. How big? So over the course of the last decade, Chinese companies were responsible for half of the total world growth in non-financial debt. Half. Half of all growth around the world in non-financial debt from one country. That's a lot of concentrated risk. Chinese real estate in aggregate was valued at its peak at around three and a half times China's GDP. Now, by comparison, Japanese real estate at the peak of its so-called bubble economy in 1989 was roughly the same level. But China is a much larger economy with a much larger population. But eventually, all bubbles run out of steam and burst. President Xi has decided that China's economy shouldn't be based on endless investment in property. As he says, property is for living in, not for speculation. And a couple of years ago, Beijing instituted measures to restrict leverage by the large property, by leading property developers. And that was responsible for bringing, first of all, the collapse of the largest and most leveraged of the Chinese developers, uh, Evergrande. And now it appears that China's property bubble is beginning to unwind. My guess is that China's economic miracle period of fast growth, which we saw really up until the middle of the last decade, running for about 35 years, has come to an end. And a bubble of this size certainly has knock-on effects. People also have to think what is going to happen to the Chinese currency. Because typically, after a real estate boom collapses, currency declines on the foreign exchange in order to give the economy 
a chance to grow again. So China has a credit boom over the last decade, has seen massive growth in China's money supply, and there's a huge amount of money in China, so to speak, waiting to get out. And to refer back to the um, Mississippi bubble uh, of 1720, one consequence of, of, of the Mississippi bubble was the decline in the French currency on the foreign exchanges in 1720. So that, I think, is another uh, potential risk for investors in China to, to consider. Beyond the bubbles, what does a big shift from lower to higher interest rates mean for long-term investors? As interest rates fall, investors do well by taking what we call duration, by buying assets that rise most when interest rates fall. So over the last four decades, and particularly in recent years, the, the winning bet has been duration, duration, duration. Equities themselves also have very, they're very long duration assets. And I would argue that the US stock market at the beginning of this year, which was at its second highest valuation level in history, with the only ex other exception being the peak of the dot-com bubble in 2000, that that was uh, largely a function of the extended duration of the US stock market. Now, one of the things that active investors had trouble with over the recent years has been that value, the discipline in investment where you buy assets that are cheap relative to their earnings, relative to their book, well, relative to their intrinsic value, value investment hasn't worked. And that has posed great difficulty for active investors trying to beat the index. And what we find is that the alpha of active investors actually appears to have declined in line with the interest rates. That could also spell good news for investors. With rising interest rates, alpha opportunities could expand and value could continue to rebound. We've already seen value recovering since late 2020. But even earlier this year, value was cheap relative to the rest of the market by, I think, by one measure, I saw it was 90, 95th percentile cheap uh, compared to its history. So I think if we're starting on a period of, of rising interest rates of, of a bond bear market, and bear in mind that bond bear markets tend to last as long as bond bull markets, they often are measured in periods of decades, so it wouldn't be unreasonable to expect interest rates to be trending upwards for a 30-year period. I mean, that historically is what we've seen over the last two or 300 years. And under those circumstances, I think the mantra for investors is going to be value, value, value. Is value investing one way to play the rise in interest rates? According to Ed Campbell, Value stocks have an advantage in a rising uh, interest rate and inflation environment. It's, it's sort of the, the flip side of, of the uh, post-financial crisis environment where the falling interest rates were um, very positive for growth stocks. So if you think about the way growth stocks are valued, it's really not based on their current cash flow and current dividends. You know, Many of them don't 
have dividends. And uh, most of the valuation is driven by future profits, right? So when interest rates fall, if you just think about you know your classic uh, dividend discount model, when interest rates fall, the value of future earnings increases. Um, likewise, it's it's sort of the opposite phenomena when uh, when interest rates are, are rising, uh, the value of of future profits is is not as valuable, and investors have much more of a focus on the here and now. So, what sort of cash flow are you producing today? What sort of dividends are you producing today? What are your dividend yields? How secure are they? So, this is an environment that inherently. Favors value stocks over growth stocks. It's not just value stocks that could have an advantage. I see tremendous opportunities in commodities、um, and traditional energy, really energy and, and material stocks, and、uh, you know more broadly within equity markets,、um, I would favor value stocks over growth stocks. So. I believe we're in the early stages of a new commodity supercycle that should last a minimum of five years plus,、uh, and I think that's driven by fundamental supply-demand imbalances in these markets that、uh, simply aren't likely to be remedied anytime soon、um, because of the the long lead time that it takes to get、uh, new capacity. In place、uh, within the commodity sector, we saw a tremendous period of underinvestment、um, during the last commodity bust cycle, which lasted from 2008 to 2020. And during that period, prices fell.、Uh, commodity prices fell about 70 percent over that 12-year period. So when prices are falling for that long and by that magnitude, no one wants to invest. And that was exacerbated by、uh, environmental policies and by、uh, ESG investing. So、uh, basically, nobody wanted to invest in、uh, in fossil fuels. Then, of course, the COVID pandemic turned supply and demand upside down. You know, now we're in a post-COVID environment where economic growth has picked up, and renewables have not really delivered on the. Energy abundance that was expected, so we have an energy crisis. And like I said, it's not something that can be fixed easily. So, if you think about energy shares, they underwent a six-year bear market that ended with COVID. I think we can all remember the day in April of 2020 when the front-month future on crude oil prices traded at、uh, at negative forty dollars a barrel. Uh, that's a capitulation point, if if I've ever seen one, and that marked a dramatic end to the commodity bear market. And now I think we're we're in a bull market, and it's young, and the shares of energy stocks are still very cheap by historic yardsticks. So I think this has、um, some ways to go. In terms of value stocks, it's、uh, it's a pretty similar argument. Value and growth cycles of outperformance tend to be very long lasting, and they tend to. To last, you know, for long periods of time, anywhere from five to a decade. Five to ten years is a long time from an investment standpoint, but not relative to the many centuries of interest rate history. Time will tell whether central bankers learn the lessons of quantitative easing that eluded John Law in 18th century France, and so many since his day.
Thanks to our two experts, Edward Chancellor and Ed Campbell, for their insights on interest rates past and investment opportunities future. You can listen to earlier episodes of this season to hear more on interest rates and inflation. Join me, Albert Chen, for the next episode of The Outthinking Investor to learn more about the investment implications of transitioning to an economy with net zero carbon emissions. The Outthinking Investor is a podcast from PGM. Follow, subscribe, and if you like what you hear, go ahead and give us a review. This podcast is intended solely for professional investor use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments involve risk, including the loss of capital. PGM is not acting as your fiduciary. The contents are for informational purposes only, are based on information available when created, and are subject to change. It is not intended as investment, legal, or tax advice, and does not consider a recipient's financial objectives. This podcast includes the views and opinions of the authors and may not reflect PGM's views. PGM and its related entities may make investment decisions that are inconsistent with the views expressed herein. This podcast should not be reproduced without PGM's prior written consent. No liability is accepted for any direct, indirect or consequential loss that may arise from any use of the information contained in or derived from this podcast. This material is not for distribution to any recipient located in any jurisdiction where such distribution is unlawful. PGM is the global asset management business of Prudential Financial Inc., which is not affiliated in any manner with Prudential PLC, incorporated in the United Kingdom, or with Prudential Assurance Company, a subsidiary of M&G PLC, incorporated in the United Kingdom. Copyright 2022. The PGM logo and the rock symbols are service marks of PGM's parent and its related entities, registered in many jurisdictions worldwide.